I bounded over the gray, dusty terrain toward the huge dome of Conrad Bubble. Its airlock, ringed with red lights, stood distressingly far away. It's hard to run with a hundred kilograms of gear on, even in lunar gravity. But you'd be amazed how fast you can hustle when your life is on the line. And that was Rosario Dawson reading from the audiobook version of Artemis, the new novel from Andy Weir, author, of course, of the blockbuster The Martian. I'm Dan Ackerman, and Scott Stein is going to tell us a little bit about the book. Artemis is Andy Weir's follow-up to The Martian. It does not take place in the same universe as The Martian, but it deals with space exploration, and it deals with a moon city. And somebody who's on that moon city caught up in an increasingly large conspiracy that involves a lot of danger, a lot of science and tech and and what goes on to building a moon city, what corruption could go on in a lunar city. I'm not going to spoil any more for you, but you're basically in a in a very hard-boiled ride from that point in. And we're going to talk to Andy Weir right now. Let's get him on the line. So I would start out, Andy Weir, by having you just tell us a little bit of what Artemis is about. Well, Artemis takes place in a city on the moon, the only the only city humanity has that's not on Earth at the time. The main character is a woman who's a small-time criminal, and she gets in way over her head. Now, do you have to have read The Martian to understand this, or more, more, more pointedly, do, do you think the books take place in the same universe? Uh, you definitely don't have to have read The Martian. The it, It's not a sequel to The Martian. It, it's its own uh, thing. It takes place in its own continuity. I guess there's nothing that precludes it from being in the same continuity, but, I mean, it doesn't—that's not defined, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you know, science fiction fans are always very concerned with uh, canon and, and shared yes. universes. Uh, we just had a long discussion over whether the new Star Trek Discovery takes place in the Star Trek new movie universe or the original the series universe. I'm still unclear on this. Good question. Well, it doesn't matter because the, the the split between the classic universe and the Kelvin universe happens after the events of Star Trek Discovery. In terms of, even if they're not in the same universe, do you think that one takes place further off in the future than the other oh, between the Martian? Yeah, uh, the Martian is defined as having started in 2035 and Artemis takes place in the 2080s. Okay. So definitely Artemis is further in the future than the Martian. And possibly in a different dimension, so to speak. But <laughs> but it is, uh, yeah. I gave us about 50 years to get to the point where we build a city on the moon. And then Artemis takes place 20 years after the city's built. And what was the interest in the moon? I I, I, I was gripped by the fact that it's maybe the celestial body we know the most about. We, we've been to, the only one we've been to, the one we've probably studied the most. Was that Was that part of the interest for you? Part of it, but um, it, it was less about interest, because in, I'm interested in anything that's in space, right? Um, it was less about interest in the moon specifically, and more about, I wanted to write a story about the first human city that is not on Earth. And so I put a lot of thought into where would that be, and, and why would it be? And so there were kind of three candidates. There's either you could have a city that's in low Earth orbit, or you could have a city on the moon, or it could be Mars. The the problems with the other two options basically make the moon the only logical choice. If you wanted to build a city in low Earth orbit, you would have to bring literally every gram of that city into low Earth orbit. You'd have to put it up there. Um, it's not like on the moon where you can use local resources to build the bulk of your uh, city. Like Artemis is built almost is like 99.99999% of Artemis or the mass of the city came from the moon itself, smelting local minerals into aluminum. 
And then, okay, in terms of building on Mars, where there's also plenty of uh, uh, materials to to work with, uh, Mars is really far away. <laughs> the moon is just, uh, well, in the the way I set it up, the moon is a seven-day trip from Earth. That's close enough that you can have trade and tourism and stuff like that. Mars, though, is, is like eight months if you're taking the most efficient, you know, the most fuel-efficient course. So now we're talking about, like, the only reason you'd, go to Mars is if you're going to stay there. I mean, that's like coming to the new world in, in 1800 kind of level of commitment. It's unlikely we would colonize Mars before we colonize the moon in the same way that it would be silly for the ancient Britons to colonize North America before they colonized Wales. I was struck by how we're suddenly discussing Mars missions in, in a much more serious way than we used to, thanks to people like Elon Musk, who kind of put it out there and have this sort of air of authority behind it. Uh, could you even have imagined that back when you were writing The Martian, that we'd be living in a world where, like, news broadcasts are seriously talking about, like, Elon Musk and his plans for Mars? Yeah, I just think the, um, Elon Musk's plans for Mars uh, are skipping a few steps. It is um, going to be a lot easier to go to Mars if we have an infrastructure built up in space. So it's kind of like saying, oh, we're going to build the transcontinental railroad. You know, from the you know East Coast to the West Coast, we're going to go from New York to San Francisco with a railroad, and we're not going to build any railroad stops along the way. <laughs> I think the guy's like, got to prove he can ship a car first on a reliable yeah. basis, then we can worry about going to Mars. <laughs> oh, now, now. So I, I I was struck by how this is much more of an ensemble piece uh, than The Martian was, and I'm very interested in the dynamic of having all the characters there at one place and one time. Uh, how do you approach that versus serving you know a single character who you spend you know almost an entire book with? Well, um, I mean, The Martian is a survival story, just pure and simple. It's basically Robinson Crusoe. It's you know not a new concept, and um, well, Artemis is also not a new concept. It's a heist story, you know. So you have to have the uh, the rogues gallery scene, and then where everybody decides to work together, and so on. They're just very very different kinds of stories. So Artemis required a bunch of characters. <laughs> so I tried to you know make just I, I tried to minimize the number of characters. You don't want to go crazy overboard. I mean, I wouldn't call it an ensemble piece, though. It's really all about jazz. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, when somebody asked me to describe it, I said it was a little bit like Ocean's Eleven on the moon. And I thought of a crime, a heist, a, a caper movie. It reminded me a bit of, of Elmore Leonard, who I love, who puts these like rogues galleries of characters together, to, like, you know, mm -hmm. execute a plan. Yep. It's like that. <laughs> Can I, you, I, I noticed uh, one thing that, that does a uh, theme throughout the book. Uh, seems like it's about, uh, you know, when you're on the moon, you have these kind of uh, maybe more fuzzy moral boundaries. You know, this is like kind of the, 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 the rogues uh, city, you know, where, <laughs> where things, the, the laws don't necessarily apply that, that, that apply on Earth. Um, do you feel like that is something that, you know, is part of the nature of what you think would happen in, in, in space? Or do you think this is... I was curious about that, uh, you know, and whether that's something you're also looking at historically in terms of you know, what colonization has been about. It's uh, I think that's just emergent human behavior. If you imagine a frontier town, it's like the old West where you have where you don't have the infrastructure to carefully enforce all the laws you want to make. You have to kind of pick and choose the laws you're going to have. And so you start off with the really important ones like don't kill people, don't rape people, don't take other people's stuff. And you kind of work down from there. You have to have a really strong infrastructure and national development before you get to the point of like, oh, yeah, no parking here on alternate Tuesdays for street sweeping. So uh, Artemis has very limited laws, and it's driven more by social norms and uh, stuff like that, which is generally the case you see in frontier or low law level 
towns, especially imagine in the 1800s kind of thing. Well, I'm curious about something that came to mind, you know, when I think about like seedy uh, space, you know, cities and, and in my childhood, you know, with science fiction, the first thing that comes to mind from when I when I grew up was something like Total Recall, you know, uh, yeah. that pops into my head. I can't get it out of my head. But it, mm-hmm. it brings up a question. You, uh, when you look at the history of colonization and um, space colonization and science fiction, books and movies, I, you know, what do you think uh, a lot of stuff got right and what do you think a lot of things have been getting wrong? Well, for me, the biggest question that I always ask when I'm because I'm a pedantic little, you know, <laughs> nerd, the big, the first thing I always ask when I see like some fictional space city, I'm like, why is that city there? Why did people go colonize that body in the first place? Like, mm-hmm. so, it, you know, you say like, OK, why colonize the moon? And some science fiction stories are be like, oh, uh, humanity colonized the moon because it had valuable minerals or something like helium-3, whatever. And we colonized the moon to harvest that. To which I say, well, why didn't you just send robots? They're a lot easier to keep alive than a human on the moon. And nobody gets mad if a robot dies. So why would you send humans to do this? Especially when a robot on the moon is just two light seconds away from Earth. It can be con- con- you know, remote controlled by people nice and safe on our homeworld. Mm-hmm. So... I don't buy that. And then another one is, oh, uh, population pressure. Yeah, population pressure forced people to the moon. And I'm like, well, then why not colonize the Sahara or the ocean or Antarctica? Literally every place on Earth is easier to colonize than any place on the moon. And then uh, the next thing is they'll say like, oh, well, we ruined the environment of Earth. And so we had to go to the moon. And I say, well... Whatever moon base you're going to build, just build that on Earth and you're isolated from the environment, right? So why go to the moon? (laughs) It's a lot easier just to stay on Earth. And then finally, there are some that say, oh, it's because of uh, persecution. You know, the people basically fled to the moon. And I'm like, well, if you can get to the moon, it either takes place in a setting where getting to the moon is fairly trivial and easy, in which case your persecutors can certainly follow you there, or It takes place in a time when getting to the moon is still very, very difficult like it is now, in which case you have like $400 billion to go to the moon. I I say you're not persecuted. (laughs) So what I came up with for Artemis is uh, tourism. I honestly believe tourism is going to be the way that people first start going into space. A city doesn't exist without an economic reason. People are not going to uproot their lives and move to some, you know, kind of harsh environment just for the hell of it. Um, there's always a reason. There's always something they can do for a living. There has to be money coming into the system. And so I came up with tourism. It makes perfect <laughs> no, sense. I fine. feel like we see so much science fiction where it's like only miners live there, only mercenaries live there. It's right. funny. Scott yeah. mentioned Total Recall. What I thought of, uh, I, I, I went back to a movie called Outland. Uh, with Sean there. Connery on as like on a space mining station that has a very similar sort of time pressure because the mafia, the mafioso are coming from some other place, arriving on a shuttle and they have to, you know, finish their caper, their Sean Connery caper before this before the shuttle arrives with the shotgun toting um, bad guys. Although everyone remembers that film since you're such a great proponent of having accurate science and science fiction, which obviously is science and tech guys we love. I, I feel like that's the movie that made everyone think you would explode if you were in, in a vacuum in space because a guy <laughs> gets a hole in his spacesuit and his head explodes yeah. and people have not gotten rid of that since. Yeah, there's, it's, a, it's a science fiction trope. <laughs> I feel like that, that's something that will never die no matter how many other movies or books or science shows or articles uh, uh, debunk that. Uh, but, right. you know, we always love the, the balance of, of hard science and, and a sci-fi plot. 
Do you start with some ideas of scientific concepts you want to explain or use or work in, like the acetylene torch scene I thought was great, where, where we explain that and build a scene around it? Or do you go through the scene and then say, this is a way I can add some interesting science to this? I, I don't do either of those, I don't think. I, I, I just say like, okay, here's the problem. What is the solution? And just by being scientifically accurate and making that a rule that I try to follow, the solutions always end up to be kind of complicated. And so that that provides me with the conflict during that problem. So if I just kind of like do a deep dive into, well, wait a minute. Oh, okay. She just needs to cut a hole in the side of this thing. Okay. Well, wait, she's doing that out in a vacuum. What about oxygen? Oh, that's not a problem. I looked it up. Oxyacetylene has its oxygen built in. Okay. Well, how does she start it? Oh, that's a neat thing. That, that might be a little a little thing to throw in there that, you know, she has a problem with that and that, that sort of stuff. I, I, I don't know. I just think about it. I think about the problems as they might arise. I feel like science teachers around the world, uh, thank you for, for <laughs> taking science seriously and making it interesting and working it into a way where, where, where people actually want to figure out the real way to do things. I've received a lot of a lot of emails and stuff from people about how to make coffee and Artemis taste good. Uh-huh. Um, there's a there's a brief there's just kind of almost a throwaway line in there that yeah. coffee ends up tasting bad in Artemis because Artemis's atmospheric pressure is about twenty percent of Earth's sea level pressure, which makes the boiling point of water about sixty one degrees Celsius, which means that you can't properly steep coffee or tea. You can, but it just doesn't taste as good. And that was just a kind of a throwaway thing. I just said, yeah, coffee tastes bad on Artemis. It's just a thing. And people sent me emails like, no, 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 you can make coffee taste good. You can cold pre- you can cold mm-hmm. brew it. Or I you my cold brew it. <laughs> yeah, you can brew it in a pressure cooker so that the boiling point yes, of water is higher it, yeah. and you could cook it that way. And there's a lot of solutions. People are like, no, no, I, 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 I'm cool with living on the moon, but I can't live without you know, coffee. So I'm going to solve that problem. <laughs> Just bring those little Starbucks instant coffee pouches with you. That's well, it. still. Oh, that's uh, right. You, you know, still got to make hot water and, and stir it yeah, into that. Yeah, hot water. Yes. You, you got to have. Hot water. That Starbucks is not going to solve brew. all our problems. Yeah, cold brew would work or, or a pressure cooker. So I'm always fascinated, as uh, Scott is too, about how authors approach technology, especially consumer technology, because that's what we what we cover here. So I, I was really drawn to your to your description and use of these uh, gizmos, these futuristic personal communication devices that people use. How did you develop that going from where we are today, where everyone has an iPhone or an Android phone, into this sort of universal standard you know, how do we get around these these communication issues? I, I, I thought having actual consumer technology was was one of the more fascinating things for me. So so I love these gizmos. Oh, thanks. Well, the main thing about the gizmos was uh, I realized, okay, I'm writing something that takes place like 70 years from now or whatever. It's, it's about 70 years in the future. I'm like, realistically, computer technology is going to grow by leaps and bounds in the intervening time. And it'll be a much larger part of daily life. I mean, I honestly... I think I might in the future write a book about just that. But 70 years from now, we might have computers just saying like, you know, managing the economy because they can just do deep dives and analysis better than human minds can. And it might be just like a computer, you know, (laughs) says like, oh, hey, uh, decrease the excise tax on imported beets by 0.2%. And that'll spark a boom. That will like give us about eleven years of uh, of good economics, and it, it's like nobody understands why it works, but it does. You know, it's kind of like when a computer's playing AlphaGo, <laughs> mm-hmm. or rather, it's kind of like the AlphaGo playing Go. But I get I didn't want to get into all that because that's not what Artemis is about. So I just said like, okay, what are what are some obvious improvements 
that you can make that would just just say like things are like super uh, simple. I would just say like, okay, you know, it seems like it would be nice if basically everything could be done with this one little device. And that's what the gizmo is. It's a phone. It's your computer. It's your it's your whole main computer. You don't have a computer at home and a phone in your pocket. That phone is your computer. You just can you can just kind of jack it in or maybe wirelessly uh, connect it to uh, you know a keyboard and a, and a what whatever. But that is your computer. You carry it with you, and uh, it's also your keys. It opens all the doors, and it's also your banking. It's your credit cards. It's literally every aspect of your identity. In a world like Artemis, where identity theft is functionally impossible because you get caught immediately. <laughs> then it's it's a great tool, and even if it even if it were in the modern day uh, in the real world, then you could just have you know fingerprint ID. I mean, I think this is the direction that mobile phones are going. It's it's the one device thing, and it's almost like uh, your your list of requirements for it is almost like what Apple's next phone wants to be. Yeah, it's what all the phones it's far want beyond. To be. Yeah, yeah, it's what all the phones want to be. But they but they, it's it, it's like it has to do with uptake. Like Apple can want. Uh, iPhones to be your credit card system all they want, but it, they still don't have the ability to to make all the stores accept Apple Pay, and people will be reluctant to change their locks to be purely digital and activated by their phones and so on. Like I think that new Amazon service where Amazon employees can enter your house to yes. drop off packages, <laughs> I think that's going to flop hilariously. Like people people don't <laughs> people don't like that idea. It's the complete opposite of what people want. Yeah, that's what I've always wanted, my house entry to be hackable. Just to open it wide up, it's fine. If things took place in a future where it was, where like digital security was just a given and trusted implicitly by everybody, then you could start having these sorts of things. I thought that was what was so interesting to me about the technology in this this book was also, well, first of all, you know, trusting that to some degree Gizmo, you know, is a, is a, the future in 70 years, who knows where it'll evolve. So Gizmo sort of encompasses it all, but also the, the contained nature of our Artemis, that if you do have a, a city that's its own uh, universe, and um, this goes from, from the Gizmos, but also to the, the question of surveillance and, uh, you know, pulling off a heist in an area where everything, it seems to be under, under one system for the most part. The challenges of that, but also like the nature of that, I thought was really interesting in this book. Oh, thanks. One thing I did do with Artemis, though, is I said they have a very strong cultural aversion to surveillance or monitoring. Like the right. people who live in Artemis are, you know, hardy frontier folk. They don't like the idea of a big brother type thing. And so they are that that's why like jazz and everyone else has a certain amount of freedom on what they do without being observed. Like their transactions will be in a, in a, in a computer somewhere when you buy things or sell things. And, you know, if you use an airlock, it records it, but there's no cameras in the hallways. There's no, none of that. And the people who live there would not allow that. It's a, um, it's a really interesting spin on where, where we are now, because we're so culturally in, in terms of science fiction, everything is so panopticon dystopian that, you know, the idea of that, we, I mean, we just came off talking about walk away with Cory Doctorow, which is a different thing than this altogether, but it, it, it is like a cultural decision, which is, which is interesting and not where, where a lot of books are going right now. Well, I, I've never liked dystopia as a genre or as a setting. I, I've just, it's never been my thing. It seems kind of like angsty. I, I don't know. It, it's, it's I, I don't like the evil, oppressive central government and the plucky group of upstarts fighting it. It's just like there's no 
how do I put it? There's no variety of plot. You don't, it, it's never going to turn out to be like, oh yeah, the government was right. And you guys are dicks. You know, that, that, that's never the outcome. <laughs> right? It's always like, Ooh, they're, the government is evil and they're, Oh, everything's stacked against the heroes and the government uses all of its incredible power in exactly the wrong ways. And rather than just killing them easily as most governments could, if they really wanted to, <laughs> However, what's weird is that while I don't like dystopian, I do like post-apocalyptic stuff. Like, I love Mad Max and stuff like that. So I guess I, I'm not interested in an oppressive central government storyline, but total anarchy is kind of interesting to me as a plot element. <laughs> now, bear in mind, I wouldn't want to live in either of those environments. <laughs> this feels like an outgrowth in a way of, of Gene Roddenberry's optimism about uh, uh, you know human nature and science and technology working together, and even though there are great problems to solve and disasters happen, we we all mean well, and and people coming together as a group can solve problems. Yeah, I don't think we all mean well, but I think enough of us mean well that we always end up kind of moving forward. Like, so what I like to do is ask people, all right, I've got this time machine here, and it can take you uh, any multi any exact multiple of a hundred years back in time, and then it's going to leave you there, and you're going to have to live the rest of your life there. And you'll be, you know, com comfortable, you know, economically. Okay, now here's the thing. It can only do multiples of 100 years. You have to do at least one. I've got a gun. You can't choose to stay. So where do you go? I would, uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy right here, frankly. Yeah, okay, so, but I've got a gun, and I'm telling you, you, you can't stay. You can go any multiple of 100 years back in time. So you can go to 1917, 1817, mm -hmm. 1717, 1617, your choice. But you have to go somewhere. Uh, that's a rough one. Scott, you pick first. I'm All right. the gun. I got to go back. Only multiples 100 years back. I would talking, say... Talking the gun now. <laughs> uh, Scott, you wouldn't last 18, very long. 1817. 1817. All right. Rather be in 1817. All right. And... I take uh, 1917, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Most I almost people... 1917, and then I panicked. Okay. Well, you panicked. <laughs> So that's tough for you, but almost everybody says 1917. And if I say 1917 is not an option, then they say 1817 and so on. So it's very clear if you just think about it a little bit that on a century by century basis, the quality of life for humanity just improves. It just gets better and better. Any given century is more pleasant to live in than the one before. No, so 1817 Scott uh, uh, got a splinter on his finger and now he's dead three days later. Right. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to swap out. I'm, I'm, I'd like to <laughs> retroactively pick 1917. 1917. And of <laughs> course, you'd rather, be, you'd rather be here in 2017 than 1917 because segregation and typhoid fever are not fun, right? But so if you ask people in 2117 where they'd rather be, they would also definitely rather stay there than come back to shitty 2017, right? So... Basically, every century gets better. I think the, the proof is in the pudding. Just human history, we just always improve the world in the long run. Maybe not in the short term. Like, I would rather be in 1923 than 1943 because of World War II yeah. and mass murders and holocausts and stuff like that. But I'd rather be in 2023 than 1923. So in answer to your question, yeah, I'm optimistic, but I think I've got some pretty good science to back that up. Yeah, I was going to ask if you consider yourself part of the the hard sci-fi genre. Oh, for sure. Yeah, The Martian is and Artemis is. In fact, Artemis is more true to real science than The Martian even. And The Martian was fairly, I mean, I worked pretty hard on that. Interestingly, Artemis, which takes place about 50 years after uh, The Martian, is even more scientifically accurate. Like everything in there is is woodwork. 
Uh, I was going to ask, what did you read leading up to Artemis, or what do you read in general? You know, were there, were there things that you started reading researching this, or are there st- is there stuff you like reading even when you're not uh, developing books like this? Well, I mean, I don't get to read much at all these days, which is really too bad. I'm just so busy, and I don't really have the time. But what I grew up reading uh, are things like Heinlein and Asimov and Clark, uh, which is funny because I'm not quite the right generation for that. I'm a, I'm a, I'm 45 years old. I'm a Gen Xer. And, but my dad is a baby boomer and he kept like every sci-fi book he ever got. And he's a sci-fi dork as well. So I ended up reading his collection growing up. So I'm kind of a one generation off on the sci-fi that I grew up reading. But if you're interested in inspirations for Artemis, uh, one of my main inspirations for it comes from a maybe unexpected place, which is the movie Chinatown. Chinatown is all about the things that have to happen for a city to grow. That's what Artemis is about. It's really like the city moves forward one way or another, with or without, you know, like you can either, you know, be part of it or you can try to stand in its way and get trampled. <laughs> it's funny. Scott and I are uh, just about the same age as you. And I think I, I grew up reading a mix of like Frank Herbert and Lovecraft and Phil K. Dick. Oh, so, wow. so I'm, I'm used to sort of being like a generation removed and reading like great old stuff. Yeah, I was Ray Bradbury growing up. A lot of a lot of Ray Bradbury and and that that not as much hard science fiction. But I read uh, yeah. I read contemporary stuff too at the time. I just didn't like it as much as the older stuff. I don't know what what are some examples. I read uh, the uh, the Incarnations of Immortality series, which is fantasy, not sci-fi. But you know, I enjoyed it at the time as a teenager, but not as much as I liked reading Heinlein and and Clark and Asimov. Then later on, when I reread. In, like in my 20s, I reread it and I'm like, wow, this is kind of disturbingly sexist. And <laughs> but, but let's not get into that. <laughs> this, this reminds me of probably the, the apex of, of my high school nerd cred as the vice president of the Bronx High School of Science, Science Fiction and Fantasy Club. Dude, back in the save 80s. Save some women for the rest of us, yeah, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> so true. So true. <laughs> I, I do want to touch on briefly before we run out of time. Uh, you're just really fascinating publishing industry story, because Scott and I are both very interested in, in, in the publishing industry, and, and obviously we're both writers, uh, you've got a great non-traditional story going from serialized self-publishing to a huge viral blockbuster, and now being in the middle of the you know very traditional end of, of, of the publishing market. You know, what model did you find works best for you creativity, creatively? Creativity. Creativity. That's a good question. I mean, it was a lot easier for me to write The Martian than it was to write Artemis because on The Martian, I didn't have any deadlines. I, I was my own boss. And also I got to get chapter by chapter feedback from thousands of people, which was really nice. Um, unfortunately, I can't do any of that with Artemis. I had a deadline. It was a traditional book deal. Yeah, it took me three years to write The Martian. No publisher would be willing to wait that long on a on a book deal. Uh, also, of course, Random House, after paying me a bunch of money, doesn't want me to post the book online for free. <laughs> so uh, I didn't get to get that you know, chapter-by-chapter chapter feedback from large groups of people. Although, of course, my editor is this really great guy who always, you know, is always ready to give me feedback. And I did, get, I did send it to my editor, my agent, and a few close friends to get feedback from them. I guess I would say I, overall... Well, I guess it's a little easier to be creative when you have no deadlines and can get as much feedback as you want. But overall, the process, I vastly prefer the traditional route. And the main reason is because I don't know anything about publicity or marketing or any stuff like that. What a what a traditional publishing house gives you is their marketing and publicity engines. 
that's what they that's what they really do. The business end of publishing that as a writer, I don't know anything about. It would be very difficult for me to learn that. I'm also not very good at, I guess, proselytizing myself. I'm not very good at saying, hey, come look at me. I I don't like doing that. It makes me feel very awkward and I get really insecure and stuff. If I'm if I was going to say like, hey, I'm going to have an event. Come see me. I'd be like, what if nobody comes, you know, but Random House is just like, all right, we talked to, you know, 5000 bookstores and they've all agreed to like put, you know, the Martian up front and center and Artemis is going to be. Yeah. And they just this is what they do. And they're good at it. <laughs> uh, it, it helps creatively because instead of random advice from a lot of people, which is useful, but instead of random advice, there's actually really detailed and skilled advice from my editor. Um, he, he's very knowledgeable and he's like, a lot of people would, you know, read a chapter. If the chapter is not working, they'll, they'll read it and they'll be like, ah, you know, I didn't like it. Just didn't click for me. You know, I can't put my finger on it. It didn't work. And, but my editor, whose name's Julian Pavia, he, he'd come in and say like, okay, this chapter has some problems and here's why. And like, cause he, he understands that stuff. So it's, it's really nice to have experts giving you feedback. Yeah. What what sort of topics or themes do you feel like you want to explore next? Do you think you're going to continue to do, you know, hard science books, you know, every couple of years and explore different, you know, uh, corners of the solar system? Well, I'm definitely going to do more hard sci-fi. I mean, that's a given. I have a few different ideas for my next book, one of which is a is a, another book that takes place in Artemis. And so I would love to do that. I would love for Artemis to be a shared setting where I have multiple books that I write that take place there. But I'm not going to commit to writing another book there until I see how this one is received. So if people are like, oh, this is great. I love it. It's fantastic. Then I'm like, yeah, you bet I'll write a sequel. And if others are like, oh, this is crap, then, you know, probably won't. <laughs> and that's how the book do, business works. Yeah. Do you think that uh, do you think that you'll stay in, in, in space or do you think you'll you're going to explore other areas related to other things related to science? But, you know, so far, two for two. You're yeah, I really space like space. I, I don't I don't. Uh, I, yeah, I don't I don't see myself doing something that's just on Earth. Although I did have I that's not true. I have one idea kind of uh, in the back of my to do file that does take place entirely on Earth. Yeah, I've got other ideas that I that I would probably do first. Sounds great. Yeah, thank cool, you man. very much. Well, thank you so much. We really appreciate the time. Thanks yeah, for thanks. having me. Well, that was really interesting. Um, I like how we talked about a lot more than just the book. We talked about the the technology that it went into it. Uh, how he approaches combining science with, uh, you know, narrative storylines. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of like the Michael Crichton space. You know, you're talking about an area that people might be interested in, maybe space exploration or building a lunar city, getting into some of the science, then having fun with that storyline, but kicking off some of the science that you might want to research later on. The question for me, you know, about where, where does that continue on? We'll have to see. There might be more Artemis books down the road, it sounded like, or maybe there'll be other books about space it's really fun just to talk about space with someone who's obsessed with it. And I like the I like the Michael Crichton reference. I also felt a little bit like he's almost in the same same universe as somebody like Dan Brown, who, again, does a lot of research and has these really interesting backstories. And you feel like he's really put the work in uh, and then creates a, you know, an interesting kind of pulpy story about it. Yeah, my favorite part is definitely reading. I'm on the side where I like to just read about the science of it. So to me, when the book gets into that, when you begin to get these unusual observations that that you did not necessarily think about when you're dealing with, you know, different gravity, um, different construction requirements, or even shipping. 
that's the part that really uh, excited me the most. And, and I said, oh, that's 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 fun. It's almost like nonfiction in that sense. It's the nonfiction that lurks within the fiction. Cool. We've also actually got a review of the book from uh, Nick Tufnell, our colleague at CNET UK, and you'll find a link to that in the in the podcast post if you want to read the review as well. Scott, what else are you reading right now? What's on your bookshelf? On a totally uh, self-indulgent area, I bought um, Twin Peaks, the newest book, which I believe is called The Final Dossier, uh, which is a companion to Twin Peaks Season 3 that... Um, Mark Frost released. And so this is, this is like like coffee table book. Yeah. So there was a larger one that came out last year. That was like a deeper history of twin peaks, but this is in the same way that there are these documents and files, but it's, it's coffee table ish. It's about 150 pages. It's not that big, but it's basically your companion piece to the series goes into some backstory elements. Uh, it's fun. You know, it's not like, I think actually think last year's book was even better as just a, a compendium of all sorts of weird stuff that the series touches upon but doesn't quite explain uh but the two together basically it's like yeah it's a stocking stuffer it's are, like, are, are they very visual do they work better as physical books as opposed to ebooks oh yeah these are classic physical books so you you know basically are illustrations and there's even the way that the pages are laid out there's like this is the great reason to get a hardcover to me that's like that and last year i got uh terry gilliam's book that was all about his life history and you know again it's like so full of illustrations he's like these books you kind of want to collect that uh, you know, sit on my shelf. That uh, other than that, I am I tend to be an ebook person. Uh, so I'm, I'm reading that. I am starting to look at um, uh, Autonomous, um, Annalee Newitz. Oh book, yeah, which has been a a hugely talked about book this year, uh, dealing with um, AI and pharma and um, pirates and and a lot of other things. And that's one that we we may get to in a in an upcoming episode. Yeah, that sounds like a fun one. It's funny following your uh, Twin Peaks uh, experience. I actually got. Future Noir, which is a big book about the history of Blade Runner that was just re-released in an updated 2017 version with like hundreds of new pages. It's a it's a huge, dense book. Uh, and, and very much like that, I think it works better as a physical book because you can jump around easily to the parts you're interested in. I think it first came out like in the 90s and it's been like updated like once every 10 years. And of course, this new one comes out just in time for the new Blade Runner movie. And, and that's just been fascinating for someone like me who really likes to dive into the decision making and history of both book and movie projects because it jumps between all of those. This guy was, uh, you know, on set. The author was on set when they were filming Blade Runner and, and has just continued to update that story ever since in this gigantic compendium book. Again, it's called Future Noir. Oh, that's cool. I've actually like slowed down on on picking up some other books while I like dig through some of my old my own existing library, which is dozens of books deep at this point. I did that too, and maybe I'll save a deeper conversation of this for next time, but I'm reading a book called Lovecraft Country that's actually going to be an HBO series now. Jordan Peele uh, is apparently working on that, and that is just a, a fascinating, great book that almost made me miss my subway stop. It was so good. But I think we've done enough today, so so let's, let's, let's wrap it up here. Yeah, that sounds good. Till next time, uh, I'm Scott Stein. And where can we find you on Twitter? Jet Scott. And I'm Dan Ackerman, at Dan Ackerman. So send us your, your book suggestions, and maybe we'll talk about them on a future CNET book club. Bye-bye. Thanks.